Well, we try we try to summarize the whole thing here on Check This Please. We're not one of those only summarize some of it podcasts <laughs> that are so prevalent to Check Please fandom. Welcome back to Check This Please, the podcast where I'm just a boy with a new haircut, and it's a pretty nice haircut. Today, we're talking about comic 216, Kiss the Ice, which was originally posted on February 22nd, 2015. I'm Secret. As always, I'm Tomato. Um, My really exciting thing to share is that this time I'm drinking Topo Chico seltzer and tea at the same time. So it's it's a double beverage kind of night. I have tea and water. I've been on like podcasting with two beverages for a while now, I think. Ugh, well, making a mess here. As spring semester 2015 winds down, Biddy fills us in on what's been happening. Some things we already saw, like Ransom and Holster getting A's on their sweaters and Lardo and Chowder getting dibs. More importantly, Shitty cut his hair off. And most importantly, Jack signed with the Providence Falconers hockey team for his rookie season. Flush with cash, Jack suggests the entire team split the cost of a new oven for the house kitchen. Now that Betsy has bought the farm. Finally, the night before graduation, the purported main cast of six people takes a trip to Faber so Jack and Shitty can bid their time as college hockey players farewell by kissing the literal ice. Then they all go upstairs to drink on the roof where it's so cold. Jack gives Biddy his jacket because Jack wants to get railed. I recently read a fanfic like a couple days ago where Jack asks to be railed and he thinks about how he never asked before because he thought it was too gay. And I was like, ah, oh, this author gets the character. There's a lot of stuff in this comic. It's it's mostly like a summarizing what happens over a six-week period sort of comic. Again, just cut Biddy's vlog. Like, just cut it at the beginning. Like, if you want to have him doing a voiceover saying, like, everything's been going on, like, just put it over the panels of what's been going on. Don't start with him giving like a full summary. Like we already know about the dibs. We already know about the A's, but it also kind of like justifies the format of hopping from one incident to another. And it does kind of help like bind together a comic that effectively is just like a scene by scene montage. Yeah, she uses this montage effect fairly often or or collage also. Like, I think those are two things she she uses fairly frequently. I don't know. I know we've talked like how could Biddy's vlogs work better in the past. And I don't think we need to rehash that discussion, but I'm curious. Clearly summary for some reason is like a really important way of telling a story to this comic. And I don't know if it's just like weird writing or if it's serving a purpose, but do you think there's a way that summary could be used that felt like a little less redundant? I guess my main thing is we don't need the opening panel of Biddy sitting in his room in front of his camera giving a summary to his audience. Maybe, I I don't know, maybe we'll see if this starts happening, but I feel like uh, Ngozi should have more confidence that if you're up to comic like 216, if there's voiceover in Check Please, you're able to sort of like presume that it's Biddy and ergo you don't need to like see him sitting there. 
every time we hop into a new strip. So that would be my, that would be my recommendation. Depending on how long it had been since the last update, when the comics were actually updating, this could act as like a useful reminder if you had forgotten or it had been several months. So I think it is serving, I guess, some kind of purpose in that way. But I think this is one of the tensions or like one of the problems about the development that this switches from a webcomic to a graphic novel. And I think this is like one of the webcomic strategies that like works less and less well because of the switch towards graphic novel. So it's not like, it's not like the last Harry Potter novel, you know, where it's like, maybe you don't have time to like reread all of the Goblet of Fire now that like the, you know, 18 years between that and Order of the Phoenix has elapsed. And maybe you don't remember, oh, it actually was Barty Crouch Jr. Like it's it's not that much material to keep track of. And here's the other thing. And this is like, I think a complimentary point. None of it is important. Like if Biddy didn't mention this, it, it's not as if like Lardo's dibs or Chowder's dibs or that Ransom and Holster are captains is important to this strip or even really the rest of the end of year two or even really the rest of the comic at all. Sometimes on this podcast, and indeed sometimes in the fandom, I do start to feel like, oh, we're really like making a lot out of something that's not that big a deal. And it's not that big a deal. Like within the context of this strip, it's like, okay, you read Biddy's like first panel where he's not really saying anything important. And then you're done reading it in about 15 seconds and you go to panel two. But yeah, I mean, one thing that I've noticed consistently is sort of like, you know, there's like extra in this comic is um, Biddy fucking yapping about things that either mean nothing and also don't add any characterization and also like take space away from something else that might've been more important. Like don't give us Biddy sitting there talking like passively at the audience about something we already know. Either put something new and interesting in his mouth, give him some sort of like a feeling or an emotion that might, you know, give us an interesting way to read his character or the moments we're about to see, or, nix the first comic all together and maybe like build up one of the moments you're trying to use to like ground the particular strip. I will say just as a a sort of historical note that this is the first comic of a so-called bitty bomb that will finish this entire year of the comic out. So starting around now, Ngozi began posting comic updates in chunks like this, sort of ramping up over three to five strips with like a particular arc happening over that like three to five strip series. And I think the logic was basically producing a large amount of content and kind of dumping it in one really exciting like mega update 
spaced out with like several months in between bitty bombs is a better way for her to work because she can then sort of see like the whole arc unfolding. So one way to look at this particular strip is it's the first strip in like a series of strips that are going to end with like a big finale. I forgot this was the the first iteration of that. Um, which I actually, we can talk more about it as we go, but was a pretty effective update method because it would leave space for fandom to kind of percolate. And then the series of updates were all really, really exciting. Yeah. And I, I do think that like the idea that like Jack and Shitty were graduating and also as the author, you know, she knows and we now know, but she knows at the time that the end of this series is going to be Jack and Biddy kissing. And it's going to be like a really big, probably like the most prominent inflection point in the entire comic. So the decisions that she's making in this particular strip as the kind of kicker off to getting there, I think is intentional. And yeah, I, I, you are right, of course, about, about this being something that's really exciting um, for a fandom, like getting a dump of new content followed by several months, sometimes six months to just kind of stew about it is a really effective way to like produce fandom content. That said, I don't think it was necessarily I don't think this strategy was necessarily implemented just to like gin up, you know, readership or gin up fandom interest. I think genuinely it seems like this is a productive working method for her when she could tell a little arc and kind of work on it in a self-contained way and get like a big chunk of the story out of the way rather than like coming back to a single strip once a month or every couple of weeks or whenever she had time for it. I think it helps, you know, create this mood of like things going really fast and like a sense of momentum, like in the story where it feels like you're accelerating towards something. Whereas sometimes when it's just a strip, a strip, a strip, and they're all coming like, you know, a few weeks to a few months in between each other and they don't necessarily relate to each other in any particular way, it can kind of feel like, all right, we're just sort of going through the motions of Biddy's school year. In terms of Biddy's narration sort of like nudging out other things that could be in the strip, it's like, does Jack have feelings about this, like at all? I I mean, so much of the comic up to this point has been about like Jack trying to work toward this and then making this decision. And then we get there and it's like a couple panels of him being like, ah, where am I going to sign? Yeah, I signed somewhere. Yeah, it's weird. But this is this is like a, a thing that happens not infrequently in this comic is that the pacing or like what is given emphasis and attention is just not what you would necessarily... <laughs> expect. I mean, we see that with like the development of Jack and Biddy's relationship and the very little attention paid to their, you know, rapport. I feel like the structure of Jack plays is an alternating pattern of single poignant moments elapsing in a heartbeat and a bunch of crazy shit went down. Let me summarize all of it for you right now. 
Yeah. And I actually think that this was like not ineffective. It's frustrating knowing like where everything headed, but while the comic was actually still updating, there is this really interesting contrast. You have these, like, as you say, these things that elapse over seconds, right? And really kind of stretch out the time of the comic. So it's like moment by moment, you're just really examining this like experience. And then this crazy pile of shit. And I think there's like something effective about that because the poignant moments become like way more heightened and way more, you know, emotionally impactful. Like the pathos gets really like pumped up basically because of the contrast with like the zaniness of the summaries, I think. Again, like I actually think upon rereading this more closely, it it doesn't really stay effective. But at the time, I think there was something really nice about it. You know, seeing Jack crying felt so intense next to ransom and holster shenanigans. So I think there is something that could have been more effective, but like wasn't totally ineffective about it. As we keep going through, I'm not being dissuaded from my sort of initial feeling about this comic from the beginning of the podcast, which is basically that if it's going to end up being a graphic novel, it should have been written as a single graphic novel, which then could have been like, you know, gone through and revised or edited to better reflect what what is happening. The limits of what we learn from the framing device of Beatty's vlogs becomes pretty evident eventually. Very rarely does it actually give us insight into the characters, even insight into Biddy. A frequent criticism of this comic, which I think is not unearned, is that it skips over a lot of moments that we either probably would have wanted to see or really needed to see in order to like accept what the the comic is trying to sell us. There's a a note in this particular comics blog post from Gozi in which she says the Twitter still has major spoilers for Eric Biddle's junior year. For year three, I'll be posting tweets on this blog, aka omgcheckplace.tumblr.com under the hashtag tweets until the Twitter opens up later in Biddy's junior year. But the Twitter was not reopened in Biddy's junior year. So it's just something to um, think about in terms of what Ngozi's plan for the Twitter was versus what actually ended up happening. Maybe this will be something we're interested in talking about, or maybe not. I mean, I was a member of the Patreon for the duration of year three. And basically once a month, we would get like a mass posting of like Biddy's tweets from this month as a PDF. And they were often like also edited to conceal spoilers. And I believe you can read them all now because Biddy's Twitter is now just unlocked, but um, whatever function the Twitter had during year two, especially probably like the first three quarters of year two before it was locked, it basically by this point has essentially just died. And I wonder if maybe like this note in this blog post is basically indicating that like she did think that once she graduated from SCAD and like had more time, she would eventually catch back up with the Twitter in terms of her pacing but she just never does. The comic ends up 
concluding in our life in 2020 and the events that it's depicting are happening in 2017. So at this point, she's like, I want to say maybe like nine months behind, but eventually she ends up like three years behind like where she actually is and it and it just gets where she never she never catches up that's okay it just means that the the twitter is is no longer really like an effective storytelling tool if she had been interested in keeping up this multi-platform storytelling which you know maybe she wasn't like it's tiring i'm sure it was really consuming keeping you know in conversation with fans as the fandom grew but also as check please started to get like a little more noticed in you know non-fandom circles probably really exhausting But I I think if she wanted to, she could have just sort of detached the Twitter from actual time and just been like, the Twitter will still be in relationship to the updates. And I think that that is like a totally fine way to tell a story. Yeah, I would say like a a, a better way to do Biddy's vlog, at least in this particular comic, would be to just like exclude it. I do think there's like something interesting in the characterization that it ends up leading to where both Biddy and Jack communicate primarily via like flat or empty statements. Like, I think that's interesting. But it's interesting in a way that like, oh, that would make a really interesting characterization in some sort of fanfic dimension or in some sort of like meta exploration of what their characters actually have in common that would make them a functional couple. I really don't think it's supposed to be like, I I think you're supposed to believe that Biddy is deeply genuine and that everything he says is truly like coming from the heart. But okay, so what's in this actual comic? Shitty cuts his hair off. Lardo cuts his hair off for him. Shitty's uh, ripped. You called his... Wait, I said, almost said pectoral muscles, but that's not what I mean. What are the what are those muscles? Your lats? No, I forget how muscles work. I'm not sure. I think they're like I think they're like uh, abdominals. They they are, but there's a there's a certain word for this, but I have completely forgotten what they are right now. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, you called them hum gutters in our outline, and a they are, and b I learned that word from an it fanfic, so. I, I'm not proud of it. But I really think that is a term that only appears in fanfic. I do not like nobody in the world I have ever heard say that word. Whatever. Anyway, so Shitty Shitty walks in and is like, Lardo, cut my hair. And Lardo says, uh, okay, not to belabor this too much, I say before we belabor this too much, just so you know, by the way, the phrase not to belabor this too much in this discussion of Shitty's hair appears on our outline in three different places. Again, we have Lardo doing basically like service work for the guys on this hockey team. And she's really only pulled into their story. She doesn't have her own. I think the comic wants us to think that this is a moment of intimacy between future husbands, Lardo and Shitty. And that it's like, well, you know, you would only ask somebody who you were really close with to cut your hair off. Like it's a very significant moment for Shitty Nice. And ergo, he's going to the person who he feels the closest to to be part of the moment with him. At the same time, it's also just like telling this woman to like do more shit for like the hockey bros whose life 
her existence revolves around. Sociologically, grooming is is characterized as being subservient in, say, very regimented monarchical hierarchies. The monarch has people whose position is to groom them in, in a more cash, let's say, context. Like, yes, it's a sign of intimacy. You only let somebody who's really your intimate, like, touch your body, groom your body, like, do your hair, etc. But... Yeah, I I mean, it's also just basically like a a type of service. It's a type of like doing labor for somebody. You're outsourcing, taking care of yourself to another person. Here's here's more of that for Lardo. Sounds good. I definitely see that and agree. And it also kind of makes me think about the way that other kinds of romance is discussed in the comic, like particularly Jack and Biddy although not only Jack and Biddy. And I kind of think that romantic affection might actually be constructed in like a subservient way or a service-oriented way in the comic. And I think maybe that's something that like to keep an eye on as we go into year three and start examining Jack and Biddy's relationship. Because as we've discussed before, Biddy is playing this like interesting role in relationship to Jack where they are each performing certain kinds of gendered expectations or certain kinds of like contrasting roles. This woman who started the comic off being perceived as queer because she had gotten this particular haircut is now giving that same haircut described with the same terminology, the shop, to a guy in order to make him more gender conforming. It's just like an interesting little twist. I don't think it's purposeful in any way. I think it's just supposed to be this like reiteration of something but it does kind of like have interesting implications for like oh yeah the trajectory of the comic and where its philosophy is going in terms of what it's constructing as you know a good way to exist in the world if you go back to listen to our first episode of semester two year one lardo we, we talk quite a bit about the meaning of like the chop and how it's based on a sort of queer women's tradition from liberal arts colleges, especially Wellesley. It is sort of like a reference point that by shitty undertaking it is is basically just like completely diluted. In a lot of ways, Shitty is probably the character who you should really feel like the least bad for in Check, Please. And he seems to be the character with like the fewest actual problems, both in terms of like the plot or just sort of like systemically in the universe. He's got cum gutters. (laughs) He's from a very wealthy family. He seems to be taken seriously and treated well by literally everybody. He seems to have no mental health problems, no physical health problems. He appears to be completely satisfied with literally everything going on in his life at all times. And he ends up getting into Harvard Law School. I'm not saying like, oh, poor shitty, like I feel so awful for him. Nevertheless, what he's being subjected to here is is pretty much like manipulative appearance policing bullshit. Telling your kid that he has to cut his hair off or his family won't come to his college graduation is for like regressive, like classist reasons is, is borderline abusive, uh, or at least it would be like in dialogue with more threats or similar behavior or whatever like and you you do maybe get like a little bit of a sense that this is like a push and pull like a kind of 
control issue within his family. And this reminds me a lot of the kind of stuff that would happen in my family, to be honest. But I think this is maybe worth like talking about a little. It also reminds me of not in the specifics, but in the sort of like uh, dynamic of things that I, I, I know pretty intimately. I am a little confused. He seems to hate his father and he seems to not care about his grandparents. So like, I don't understand why he cares if his grandparents come to his graduation, particularly. Um, maybe it's just that we're not given enough context for me to understand like, oh, this will disrupt his family, you know, culture in a certain way that he doesn't want to do or something. But I don't know why he cares, especially because he's been you know, position this whole time is this like anti-authoritarian, like fuck the system, fuck expectations kind of guy. So I don't really understand why he cares unless maybe they're paying for Harvard. But, and I, I have that somewhere in my head, but I can't remember if that's real or if that's like something that I read in a fanfic sometime and just got lodged in my brain. I'm not sure, but I don't really understand why he's so upset and like willing to cut his hair for this what like it's his graduation who fucking cares like he's gonna walk on a stage and then leave it like it doesn't matter i don't know everything about this particular power exchange is deeply relatable to me like every inch of it i don't recall anything confirmed in anything i've read from the comic or the paratexts about like who's paying for his education specifically, but you have to presume that it's either his parents or his grandparents, right? Like maybe he's gotten a, a, you know, an NCAA scholarship to play on the hockey team. Not that he seems to need it, but uh, even if he's got that, it seems like probably somebody has got to pay for him to go to law school. And yeah, I mean, who else would it be? Like you imagine he's probably not taking out loans, right? I guess maybe he got some sort of like merit-based scholarship. He probably didn't need to apply to FAFSA. Um, he probably wouldn't even qualify, let alone need to. It absolutely is true that when you have a dynamic where there's money involved, that causes the people who are in control of the money to have a certain amount of influence or power that is very easily abused. And now here's the thing, like, shitty seems to be doing fine. He seems to be doing okay. But like, he may be just like going along with this so that he doesn't have to hear about it anymore. It also may be that he actually like wants his family to like be proud of him and approve of him and like come to his graduation. I think those are all real. And also I completely understand about like the way that money, especially in family relationships can be leveraged and used in ways that are problematic or abusive. I guess what I'm saying here is, is not that I don't find these things potentially relatable or that I can read into this and like come up with reasons as to why he would care, but it's not in the comic at all. Like we don't know enough about this character and his relationship to his family to really understand why this is happening. 
And so it just ends up being this like kind of weird character note to me. And that's what I'm frustrated about because in comparison to what we have, what we do know about shitty, like based in explicit text or suggestion in the canon, like we, like this just is not in keeping with the values he seems to have espoused before. So I guess I just really would like, like more insight, like maybe a, a comic where like we very briefly hear Jack and you know, shitty discussing their like crazy family issues. Like, I think that would be really interesting um, and like an effective way of showing us their friendship and kind of giving us like an insight into what makes them best friends. You know what I mean? Like, I think that would be really interesting and I'm, I'm frustrated by the lack of it. And I think the lack of explanation kind of contributes to this like weird narrative about adulthood that I think we're about to get into. And, and I don't know, I just I, like, I would like to understand what he's thinking more here. I think this is a case of Biddy has tweeted about this family drama of shitties throughout year two. And this is it finally coming into the comic proper. That's not one of the things I remember. Although I was reading the Twitter, there's certain tweets that like really made an impression that I remember. Shitty's family drama is not one of them. So it's, yeah, it's not effectively done. So in November of 2014, so first semester, Biddy tweets, ugh, Shitty can't come to Thanksgiving dinner at the house. He has to take the train over to Boston and have dinner at his dad's. The nice side of the family is fun. And by fun, I mean terrible. Shitty, colon. Let's just say my parental grandparents are still fucking disappointed I chose Samwell over Harvard. Jesus Christ. Biddy asks, do people still actually get into Samwell and Harvard? That is the stupidest question. Like, if you can get into Harvard, you can get into Samwell. Especially if you're like a legacy, which I think is what's being implied. Shitty. These are the same grandparents who won't come to graduation if I cut my, if I don't cut my hair by the fucking way. And then um, 20 something asks something that we can't see. And then uh, Biddy replies to 20 something. I think his mom's in Cambridge, dot, dot, dot. And they definitely split holidays. Then I just see him walking around in Wonder Woman boxers and eating cinnamon toast crunch out of the box and forget sometimes. And then to somebody called Mooney Girl underscore, he says, I think they've accepted it. I don't know. And obviously these are all tweets that are like completely without context because they're just a copy and paste of these tweets. Tumblr, I, I think the implication is that people are saying, oh, I forgot that Shitty's grandparents are really rich and that he's really loaded. And then Biddy's saying like, yeah, I forget sometimes because he's always naked. I think it's basically Biddy saying to whoever asked him about this that he thinks that Shadi's family has accepted that he's kind of like this. Then the next month on Boxing Day, Biddy quotes Shadi saying, I'm super grateful for gifts and everything, but I legit got my grandpa's old Harvard cufflinks for Christmas and bits I'm going to scream. And then Biddy says, excuse me while I listen to my friend vent about law school and family traditions and how fucking business school is always an option. My friend Shitty's opinion on business school. Harvard Business School is a fucking joke. Shitty. I'm not applying after two years with OB experience. I'm not sure what that is. I'm never applying. Do I look like someone who wants an MBA? 
And then a couple days later, in reply to 20-something, they're talking about how they don't know Shitty's first name. Biddy on 420 tweets about Shitty. Shitty doesn't usually get angry or wear a shirt, and he's sitting in the kitchen doing both. I'm concerned. Oh, Shitty's grandparents are coming to graduation. The Shitty ones. No pun in fucking tended. And then Biddy tweets, but does that mean? And then he tweets, I've noticed that my oven works better at certain times of the day. I'm going to start on a pie and pray for both it and be nice. I guess what I'm getting from this is like, okay, so the tension has definitely been mapped out in the Twitter. I'm actually really interested in what this is like just unlocking for me about the way that Biddy tends to think about friendship or something. Even though he's worried for shitty or whatever, this is like a startling lack of interest. I mean, I guess you wouldn't share your friend's private information on your fucking like baking Twitter, but the way that this is made in conjunction with the way that we see Biddy act in canon, it's like shitty has like almost no interiority here. Like, yeah, he's in this tension, but we don't know why. We don't know what the tensions are in play. These guys are supposed to be like really, really, really close friends, but we actually like have no idea except what we can guess about Shitty's, you know, motivations. And I don't think that's necessarily always bad. Like, I think you don't need to hold readers' hands in every single moment. But I do actually think giving Shitty, like, a greater sense of interiority would probably deepen our understanding of him as a character and our understanding of his friendships with Biddy and Jack. I think that this could be really, really, really interesting. And instead, it's just kind of, like, not that interesting. Well, I think it's not that interesting, partly because as you as you say, it's not really developed, but also because Shitty as a member of this cast is very prominent and has a very like noticeable high degree of characterization and a central role within the comic in the first year of the story. And then the returns on Shitty as a character degrade over the course of the story, up to the point where he's almost like not in it by the end of the story. In some ways it's like, okay, that's fine, whatever. In some ways it's like, I I regret that that's the case. It's almost like he's symbolic of what people think Check Please is. He's this wacky stock character in a like goofy college setting. He also has like a high degree of verisimilitude. Like I, I really do think like much more so than like the other characters in the comic. Like he is a very well-realized depiction of the kind of person you meet in a place like this. And I know I've said that before, but probably what happened was Ngozi got to a place where she just wasn't that interested in continuing to tell stories about this kind of character this like hyper-privileged white guy who thinks he knows everything and is obnoxious about it and in some ways is a good guy and a good friend but in other ways is just sort of you know typical of like the way that like well-off white dudes well-off straight white dudes just 
think that like they have the answers to everything. In some senses, it's like, yeah, you know, the the story of this kind of guy has been told over and over again. Like in some case, he's just a, you know, worldly wise kind of don't give a shit wandering around. I've rejected like elite society, except for in all the ways that I am still a member of it. How many times do you need to like hear that story or tell that story? At the same time, there could have been like a really incisive examination of this sort of character. But I think ultimately, like Ngozi is the kind of person who, if he's over something, instead of doing a cross section of it for the purpose of examining it, she'd rather just like drop it and move on. I also just remembered the name of the muscles, which are not laughs. I'm so sorry. They're obliques. <sighs> okay, so whatever, shitty. He never grows his hair back out. He matriculates to Harvard Law School. He has short hair and he's like somewhat more reserved and restrained on the whole sort of going forward from here. So I think what's interesting is that you can ask why he did this, given that he's so politically stringent, like, wouldn't he be a kind of classic enough to just be like, fuck you, no. But then I think you could also maybe ask like, if this wasn't sort of the real shitty the whole time, like, wasn't he basically always gonna be this short haired lawyer guy? And Samwell was a diversion from like the mainstream things he always planned to be and do. On that note, I think there's actually like a really interesting parallel to Jack here. And this is where I think all of my vision about the fact that like they never even interact is actually kind of not just like me complaining about something I noticed, but rather like a, a, a real sort of untapped potential in this comic. As, as you noted, you know, a few minutes ago when we were talking about this. Yeah, I mean, the fact that these two characters are supposedly best friends, you would think that you would learn something about both of them through their interactions and also something about, like, the type of people they are, scions. Yeah, it says something interesting about what growing up means and what a certain kind of growing up means. That is coming into your own as somebody who's following a path that's essentially been predestined for you. I also think it's very funny that Ngozi, based on all those tweets we just read, seems to think that like there's something bullshit about going to business school in a way that like going to law school isn't. I don't know. I don't know what you do in business school, like Excel, whatever. There's so many interesting questions about like generational wealth and about gender and about like the false promise of of woke white guys and just like all of these really interesting things that flow through this character. And the story just never presses into them. Here you have like a perfect thing to sort of like incisively examine and, and it just doesn't happen. Like you have the perfect character to do this with, like in part because he's not a villain. He's not awful. He's like overall a nice guy who's like cool and accepting and like fun to be around. 
and he happens to be these other things too. And so it would be interesting to examine this through him and also through Jack and their friendship. And it just doesn't happen. It's just not in the text. Kind of going from the Jack and Shitty parallel that there's this implicit suggestion, which I think we, we talked about before and we talked about like the sort of conservative values that are weirdly sprinkled in this comic. Um, but I think that there's a suggestion about what maturity and adulthood should actually look like, not just what they can look like, but like what they should look like based on social expectation and based on familial expectation. I don't know, the first time I read this, I thought Shitty's haircut was actually exactly what you just said, the beginning of a critique or the beginning of an examination of exactly this kind of problem. But now having read the whole comic and seeing what happens with Shitty and also how like other things are handled, it just kind of reads didactic. At a point of maturity, you must give up your rebellion against the things you don't like and you must like sort of submit or assimilate to the expectations that have been put on you. And I think that's also something we see with other characters and it's a really like interesting and depressing way of constructing growing up. I really hate that. I feel like this weird like, you know, capitalist construction of like what adulthood is. It's about normalizing and compartmentalizing college was for this and now you're in the rest of your life and it's it's bizarre isn't it? it's like characters in this comic are constantly getting like significant growing up like maturity haircuts well as you know your outside does perfectly represent your inside so you have to let everyone know that you're an adult now i haven't even been able to get a haircut in a year tomato I have shaved some of my own head, but now I've given up on that. It's a real mess. Uh, I have I have great news for you, which is that I have been shaving my my own head this whole time, and that's made it even more of a mess. I actually like so all of this critiquing aside, I actually think Shitty looks like a lot better uh, with this haircut, which is weird because I usually think men look a lot better with longer hair. I don't know that I fully agree. I think he looks nice. I think I miss the long hair though, because I have like an attachment to who Shitty represents or like what kind of dynamic he represents in the comic when he has long hair and then his short hair like bums me out a little. But also because in the in one particular panel, he looks a lot like my old roommate. He doesn't look like him most of the time, but there's one panel where I'm like, oh my God. And, uh, and I think that might have soured it a little for me, to be honest with you. I also think that when he's wearing suspenders, he's in like, I don't know, like ironic preppy drag or something. That's kind of like the little, little backstory that's in my mind when I see those panels. I like that. I, that's the way that I can kind of like understand the, his like drastic presentation change. You know, he's cosplaying as a lawyer, basically, or doing drag as a lawyer. Well, all presentation is performance tomato. <laughs> I did learn that, yeah. Yeah, all right. Well, anyway, so then uh, Jack picks an NHL team. It's later framed in Paratex that George and the Falconers were the only ones to take Jack seriously and like really want him to play for them. But like blatantly as what's happening in this strip is that he had multiple offers 
And that's not counting the one that, like, Parse made to him several strips ago. Falconers weren't the highest bidder. Like, he has to come down, as we'll discuss, several hundred thousand dollars in order to play hockey for them. Just in terms of, like, what that means, it, it means that other teams wanted him more than the Providence Falconers did because they were willing to, like, spend more of their cap space to get him. They thought he was, like, a better investment. I saw Tomato take a big sip of tea. Jack needs to be doing this with his agent. He needs to be doing it with, like, his agent who he pays to do this, whose job it is, who has this expertise, and or potentially with his manager, and also potentially with, like, his dad, who has, like, a lot of experience making this decision. This is not something you want to decide with, like, your ragtag crew of, like, college friends. Like, they're not even college graduates. It's like one of them is a bio major. One of them is an econ major. I guess that's maybe helpful. One of them is a gender and sexuality studies major. And one of them is Biddy. So it's just like, what is it that can these people actually offer to Jack in this situation? And the answer is like, good vibes and a Tupperware full of God knows what. Well, isn't that? Really, all you need to make a decision impacting how many hundy K, quote unquote, you're going to get from your big debut in the NHL. Just an Excel spreadsheet in a dream. That's all you need. Ugh, ugh, ugh. No, it's like you should be doing this with like professionals whose job it is to figure it out. Whatever. Okay. Also, I think it's weird that like the classic Montreal Canadiens and uh, Boston Bruins rivalry doesn't come up here. Like you'd think that would be a good reason why Jack wouldn't want to pay for them. Guess not. Despite the fact that this comic strip is actively discussing hockey, we've just sort of like forgotten about hockey for a while. I do also think, so you mentioned before that you'd think that, you know, you would spend more time on, on the signing and on sort of like the whole decision about the signing. I do think that this particular moment is like partially constructed in a way that is trying to be emotional or something. It's like trying to make a point about the Falks and Jack's future relationship with them. But since there's like his actual decision, like the actual signing is just not even in a panel. It's like we hear the discussion and then in the next panel, he's already done it. And he hasn't even told his friend, like his best friend about it, um, which is just supposed to be a throwaway joke, but it's just like kind of fascinating. So I think that's what makes it feel unemotional, even as there's this attempt to create some kind of like pathos. I'm really interested in this like few hundy K. We should think more about that. Jack's dismissal of a few hundy K, which by the way is just like a hilarious way to like say something. Several hundred thousand dollars is to underscore that like Jack is playing it's obviously not about something as crass as money. We do things out of love as passion projects in this comic, not to get paid. Like, it's interesting, buttoned up with the economics of, like, this particular comic. Jack doesn't care about money because he just wants to play hockey. He's not playing hockey to get rich. He's playing it because, like, he, he loves hockey very much. And he just, he would value more playing time over actually getting paid. Of course, he's in a position to do that because of like the privilege with which, you know, he inhabits the world. So that's part of all this. And I think like, just as you mentioned before, there's like a total lack of examination of shitty. There's also a total lack of examination of this part of Jack's life and how like his experiences in the world are impacted by that. 
we don't do this for money, we do this for love or whatever, is like a really useful lens to think about the rest of the comic. Often material concerns like money and like physical security are sort of treated as though they should be secondary to what I'm going to call, for lack of a better word, emotional righteousness. We'll really see this when we start thinking about like coming out in the latter two years, because I think it is a strange combination with what, you know, this like narrative about what maturity is supposed to be. So you're supposed to do things for love, but also you're supposed to like assimilate into society and society's expectations. It's like a really weird, contradictory thing for me. Even if Jack's parents are millionaires and he's going to be okay and like in the grand scheme of things, he'll, he'll be fine because he's he's already coming from like, again, a position of maybe not generational wealth because we don't know anything about like his family beyond his parents. There is something to be said for like making money that's yours rather than money that's from your parents. If you are going to compare it to shitty situation where it seems to be being implied, shitty's grandparents are Brahmins and there's a culture of abuse in his family, like going down generations because it's like the money is always coming down from like the centuries or whatever, rather than like self-generated. There is something to be said for like generating your own wealth as like a freeing mechanism in a lot of ways. Just because you already have money doesn't mean that like, or you're already in theory coming from money doesn't necessarily mean that more money doesn't have any sort of like emotional value. It can effectively like get you freedom in some senses from whatever past you're coming from. Even if Jack's parents are already millionaires and obviously they are. It's in Jack's interest to make as much money as he can because he's already entering the league at 25. So he's lost about, you know, seven years of his playing career. And also hockey is a violent sport that'll take an immense toll on his body while preventing him from developing other employable skills or like developing a career in some other arena. Like it's, he's effectively generating skills that are only related to playing hockey. If he's injured or his career is shortened in some other way, or he ends his hockey career unable to perform certain kinds of work for any number of reasons, having made more money at the outset of it is smarter. If he's making more money earlier in his career, then he's in a better position to make more money later because if his production stays at the same rate or improves over his time in the NHL, then he can get more money. Hockey careers are really short. And if Jax is cut short because something injurious happens to him and he's no longer able to play, the fact that he made a couple hundred thousand dollars a year extra over his relatively brief time in the league, if he can't do anything for the rest of his life after this, is, is maybe something he wants to have. And then, of course, you can also make the reading that, like, well, you know, that's how it works for guys who are, like, you know, coming into the league from just, like, your basic upper-middle-class, like, white families. But 
this is never going to be an issue for Jack, number one, because his parents are millionaires, and number two, because he's Canadian. So it's like, if he does need, like, round-the-clock care for the rest of his life, like, he's probably not in as bad a position as, say, American players would be. Several hundred thousand dollars is, in a lot of ways, a huge amount of money, except it's not if that's all the money you're ever able to make for the rest of your life. And you have some sort of, like debilitating injury where you need some kind of care or some kind of treatment. Part of Jack's weird relationship to wealth. Like, I think that this is part of that. Um, I do also think it's interesting that we see the team in this particular time helping Jack make a decision. I think this is the only time we see like his teammates or like a group of friends helping him make a decision. Uh, the other times we see Jack get any kind of advice or guidance it tends to be from his dad or from Biddy. And that's also quite rare. Like Jack seems to be pretty interested in making decisions on his own. I thought this was like really nice detail. Although yes, completely insane. He should not be making these decisions with his teammates. I guess maybe he's also talking to his, you know, like agent, but uh, I think it would have been really nice if it weren't so quickly just like skipped over in one panel. I think that would be like a, an interesting way to kind of think about the dynamics of the team. And also Jack is learning to ask for help and what that means for him, you know? Yeah, but it's also like interesting because this is one thing where it's like which NHL team Jack goes on to is something that really only like is important to Jack. So it's like his friends winging in is it's like, well, he's the one who has to be on this NHL team. Like they're going to keep going to college or they're going to go to law school or whatever. I don't know. I guess I'd also ask my friends opinions, you know, and next time I'm picking a hockey team, maybe I will. I also think it would have been helpful to have like another George appearance here. He does actually show up in the next strip, which I like completely forgot about. Isn't his relationship with George why he's picking this team, at least in part? Wouldn't it have been nice to like see that or something? I guess you can make the argument, well, it's from Biddy's point of view. So maybe Biddy wasn't there. But yeah, I just think like if you made me learn this character's name, you know, make maximum use of her, please. Yeah, so this is one thing where I think that the fact that this has to be from Biddy's point of view is actually kind of like harming the comic. If I were making storytelling decisions about like how to express this, I would make the entire strip about Jack grappling with this, not just choosing between like Boston and Seattle and Providence, but, you know, the way in which this decision is part of his life and it's weighing on him this momentous thing that he's been working toward the entire duration of the comic and also like his entire life essentially it's also a really interesting reversal of the situation he was in when he ended up like trying to kill himself and in rehab (laughs) because the story about Jack and the draft is all about somebody who really isn't getting to make any decisions. He's just being pushed into a system where everything is decided for him. Effectively, old men in suits who are, you know, and I guess George also, going to be making decisions that are going to control the rest of his life like that's basically what the nhl draft process is all of these other people 
are in control of what happens to Jack and where he ends up. And because of the series of events that have happened to him and also the series of decisions that he made in terms of going to college and playing, you know, NCAA hockey, now he's in a position where he's the master of his own destiny, where for somebody who has anxiety, it's like, well, you're trading away the uncertainty and the lack of control, but now if this is fucked up it's all on you it's not you as a victim of other people's decision making it's you as the author of you know your own bad decisions it would be really interesting and really gratifying if this were actually looked at as more than like you know a fun afternoon where you know everybody had each other's backs I think this would work really well as a strip where you see like the moments of Jack's final semester with the NHL kind of encroaching. Biddy asking him to go do something and the pile of contracts is sitting on his desk or his dad is texting him or Kent Parson is texting him about it, or he's trying to live his life as a normal college student and he wants to be in the moment, as he was talking about a couple strips ago, but this thing is looming in the background and he eventually just has to like grapple with his own anxiety and like make the decision. A role that was more prominent for Biddy in this decision-making process would be really helpful because again, the fact that they have this particular bond is not really underscored here. It seems more as if it's just like Biddy is one of several of his friends who is helping him with this. So it's like, it would be nice if he had a conversation with Biddy or a moment with Biddy where Biddy gives him some sort of advice or some sort of reassurance that actually helps him make this decision. For example, it's very obviously foregrounded that Jack ends up on the Providence Falconers because he wants to stay near Samwell. Like he doesn't want to move across the country. He doesn't want to be like in the Western Conference. So he could have some like, you know, series of moments where this decision is looming over him. And then maybe at the end of the strip, Biddy catches him in the kitchen, stressing out about it or whatever. And Jack says something like, my agent really wants me to pick X, Y, and Z, but I don't know. I just don't want to go to Seattle. That seems so far away. And then Biddy could say something like, if you went with Providence or Boston, we could hang out. Or something like that. And then that would also be calling back to Biddy's seeing that Providence is only a 40-minute drive from Samwell. I realize I'm effectively like rewriting this comic sitting here, but I just feel like there was a way to basically like communicate this that would have been like better and sort of like anchored what's happening to the things that actually end up being important to like the character story we're supposed to be invested in. Agree. And I also think that kind of lingering in a more meaningful way on Jack's moment of decision would have added weight to his decision to kiss Biddy. Jack really like grappling with what it means to join the NHL, to choose a team, to to think about his future would be a really good parallel to 
him making other kinds of decisions about his future too. And it's, it's like a bummer to have missed out on that. Okay. So then we have to talk about this stupid oven. Here's the thing. We wrote so much about this oven and by we, I mean, mostly me, I wrote so much about this oven, but now that we're here, I just like, don't even want to talk about it because who gives a shit? Let me summarize what's important. Number one, there is some interesting stuff about Dex and Nursey here, namely that Nursey seems skeptical that Dex can like tell what's wrong with the oven. It's just a cute little moment that kind of circles back to this sort of like they don't really get each other thing that's going on. I just like it. Then also something I noticed for the first time ever is that Nursey is wearing a big watch. And this comic has, you know, an interesting sort of like watch iconography going on where it's like rich people own them. Nursey's wearing this big, nice looking watch, not unlike the Kent Parson watch that we're all supposed to take as a character judgment while he's saying to Dax, uh, you know what's wrong with the oven? As if like, you know, oh, he's he's so rich, he would never know how to fix his own oven. He would just hire some mechanic or something. Surely regular people don't know about ovens. And like full disclosure, I definitely do not. Like in terms of at least like whether or not they're broken, I would call, you know, an electrician. For a long time, my feeling about this oven has been that Jack should have just bought the fucking oven. Ovens are not that expensive, relatively speaking, and I'll explain. Presuming you're buying a new one, you can get like a good solid oven, like a gas range that has a cooktop and an oven in the like $600 range basically. Or if you want a re- like a really good one, like a, like a high quality one, it's maybe more like a thousand dollars, which yes, if you don't happen to have that cash is a big chunk of cash. But when you think about like how fundamental an oven is and how often you use it and how it's like not an object that can really be like functionally replaced by anything else, it's not expensive necessarily because the like cost per use of an oven, which is something that will last for decades is, is, is very low. And it's not something where it's like, you know, a luxury item where it's like you could wash your clothes by hand if you wanted to, but a washing machine would make it easier. Or you could wash your dishes by hand if you wanted to, but you know, having a dishwasher would make it slightly easier. There really isn't a replacement for an oven with a cooktop on it. It's like, that's what it is. So you basically have to replace it. That rant aside, Jack like plainly has money, like obviously. And it seems absurd to me that he would like ask anyone else to help pay for the stupid oven. What is $600 to him? Like if a few hundred K is nothing, like what is an oven? And the comic never actually gets into money but there's like all of this paratext actually about Jack being a millionaire who can buy bitty like pairs of shoes that cost as much if not more than a single oven costs why should the rest of this hockey team aside from maybe shitty like actually chipping on this like shouldn't Jack just do it 
Like, at this point in the comic, Jack's mom, according to the Twitter, has already taken him to buy a two-bed, two-bath luxury condo in Providence. But then I also get this rationale that it's like a symbolic gesture that the entire team is grateful to Biddy for his baking, so ergo it's, like, more meaningful if they all chip in. I guess it is kind of, like, slightly insulting to imply that people with less money than you have can't afford to do something. And I also think that, well, when push comes to shove, we don't actually know, like, what this arrangement was, like, by chip in or whatever. I always thought for some reason that, like, that meant they were splitting it evenly, but then it kind of occurred to me, well, that's not actually said. Like, all of them could just be putting in, like, five bucks, and then Jackie is paying for the rest of it. But it's not really clarified, and why should it be? Because this is just the crazy way that I think about this comic. Like, as an economic point, it is really weird to me, and it, like, speaks to some philosophy embedded in this comic that I think the author does not actually agree with, that Biddy must be compensated for performing labor that is entirely voluntary, and it's also not really labor because it's, like, a leisure activity. Biddy was going to do all of this baking anyway. Like, they happened to be eating it because they happened to be there, but, like... He's not doing it as a favor to the rest of the team. He's doing it because he's really into baking. It's like, like they're not asking him to make food. He's making food and asking them to eat it. And I say this as somebody who is like the bitty in, in my own life. I really enjoy baking. So I make like a giant cake or whatever, because I think the challenge of making the cake is fun. And then I give it to other people and they're grateful But it's like, no, actually the exchange here is that you're helping me out by like eating the food that I make so that I can bake things for fun. So the idea that like he's producing and everybody else should be compensating him is just like, I don't know, it's like a weird like economics of like, what is this comic trying to tell us about like Biddy's labor? Should not the wealthiest person who benefits from Biddy's hobby also shoulder the burden like according to his means? What the comic is setting up here is that there should be sort of like an equal obligation rather than like an equity in terms of who owes Biddy what for all of this baking. That was a long rant about what's just supposed to be like a nice example of the team acknowledging what Biddy does for them. But still, I've been thinking about this for a long time. I think there's something here which is related to the philosophy of righteousness versus material security or whatever. And I I like cannot articulate it entirely and hopefully it will come to me as we keep thinking about it. But there's also something here about like affection and emotion as transactional. Like obviously Jack is rich and just like buys presents for Biddy. Um, And that's like normal. That's the thing that happens in relationships is people give each other presents, but there's like something about it, which is really strange to me in conjunction with like other arguments the comic is basically making about like affection. That transactional quality is definitely present in this like weird calculus where everybody should pitch in equally or something to buy Biddy an oven, even though that's like a greater burden on a lot of other people on the team 
yeah, I can't fully articulate where this is going, but there's like something weird about money here that I just want to keep thinking about and just bringing up. I think framing things in terms of like equality versus equity is how I would put it. The idea that everybody is using or everybody is benefiting from a service. Therefore, everybody should pay in equally because everybody's getting the same amount of the service is equality. But the idea that some people are more able to subsidize the service, therefore they should pay for a larger portion of it is equity. Like it's more burdensome for somebody who has less means to pay the same amount than it is for somebody who has more means to pay that same amount. I have two notes about kissing the eyes. Note number one, this is not an NHL tradition or even like a general hockey tradition. This is a college sports tradition. College hockey teams do do it and Ngozi discusses that within the blog post. The reason why this is a college thing and not an NHL thing is because every single year, people who are seniors leave the team. So the idea that you have a ceremonial saying farewell to your time on the team is going to be a part of everybody's college athletics experience, whereas you could be on the same NHL team for your entire career and you never really have to say goodbye to it like this, or you could get traded quite a bit and constantly be saying goodbye to NHL teams and you just don't know. And the way that trades work in the NHL is that they can basically happen randomly all the time to the point where it's uh, not uncommon to basically be told like you've been traded goodbye and just have to go somewhere else in the middle of the season. So yeah, this is, this is something that's not just like a hockey thing. This is specifically about college. And then the other thing that's interesting about this particular scene is that shitty cries uh, that we'll, we'll come back to this later, but something really interesting about like Jack sublimating uh, his own feelings is, is that he has this way of like emasculating shitty when he feels bad about something the way that he the way that he does it is by like pointing out shitty's flaws shitty shitty cries and jack is like oh you're crying and shitty's like shut up yeah i think it's interesting to keep in mind that jack is chirping him for crying when jack himself not only cried in the last comic or actually two comics ago but he had to go and do it alone so that no one saw him doing it so that nobody could like chirp him for doing it. Don't know how intentional it is, but still, you know, funny. Put a pin in that. Uh, Okay, then they go up to the roof. Yep, this is the last time this will ever be a fun college hockey comic. I think it's interesting that the cast that goes up to the roof is this specific like six people. Because I think these are like the six people who are supposed to be the main cast of this comic. Four of them will become very irrelevant very quickly, if not by the end of the comic. It's just like a, a last a last moment when this is like the core group of people who you think of as the cast of the comic, or maybe you continue thinking of this core group of people as the cast of the comic, but they really have like one occasion per year to be together in this particular grouping. Just, I do think that moments like this are like part of the difficulty for people who started reading the comic 
you know, during year one or year two or the very beginning of year three and people maybe started during year three or four and maybe like a different relationship to original cast characters because the way the fandom approaches this group of people definitely shifted over time. If you're reading the comic at this point, you've seen all of these extras kind of like building up the world of this comic around these six people. And if you are in the fandom or have been for the duration of the comic, it's actually like this comic has been going on for two and a half years now. So if you've been following in real time, it's like this is a condition you've been living with for a while. And certainly it's like, these are the six people who I think of as like the main characters of this comic, like the cast of this comic. But like in practice, it's not really true. BD asks if it's safe to be up there. My question is like, why would it not be? I don't know. I think that the whole roof thing is really strange because at first I was like, well, maybe you can read it as about the fire that they're putting, (laughs) that they're like lighting on this roof. But the blog post also says don't go up on roofs and like, This is a big flat building made of like very sturdy material. Who hasn't been on a roof? Like, I don't understand what's happening here. Go on a roof, it's fine. Don't go near the edge and like, make sure you don't look yourself up there. It's it's cool. I I don't really know what's going on here. Plenty of roofs are made to be gone out on. Like, I don't know. This one is like, they're walking up a stairway. Yeah, so I, I don't know. No, I mean, it's just like, first of all, he says, is it safe to be up here? He doesn't say, is it safe to have a bonfire on the roof? He says, is it safe to be up here? Which implies he means like on the roof. And I think it's just like, Biddy is a wee little baby. He's just, I don't know. It's like, it's like he hatched last week. He doesn't know how to fly. Whatever. Fuck it. Okay. So then Something that I do think is perhaps actually confusing is Ransom is talking about how they did this last year. And he's saying, you'd already left, but last year we all fell asleep with Johnson up here. And I kind of read this to mean that Ransom was saying like, oh, Biddy had gone home for the summer before they did this. Because this is like the last night of school. It's like the night before graduation. But you seem to think that it means that Biddy had like gone home for the night or whatever. Yeah, that's always how I read it was that Ransom was saying like Biddy got tired and went home or something, but they kept going on with the revelry and went up to the roof. But in either case, what it is, is basically like retconning something. The previous year, the end of the strip. So last year, Biddy has already moved into Johnson's room like before he leaves Samwell. So Johnson leaves campus before Biddy does. Jack is on his way out the door while Biddy is still unpacking in Johnson's room. So Jack leaves before Biddy does. And this whole thing about you'd already left, it's like, yeah, Biddy knows where he's been or not. Like Biddy, Biddy knows that he wasn't here last year. So this is very blatantly like hand of the author and Gozi clearly wanted to write some jokes about Johnson and also cement that this is like a tradition that had already happened in these people's lives, but it hadn't happened in the comic. And it's not the worst thing in the world, but it's, yeah, it's, it's like this kind of stuff that I noticed rereading this comic. It was just like how transparent this particular moment is. Yeah, and transparent for like no reason. This comic is for whatever reason obsessed with milestones, tradition, reiteration of like action. I don't really know why. Sometimes it's really effective and sometimes it's not. Another tradition, another milestone for like no reason. They could have just gone up on the roof. It didn't have to be a tradition. 
Yeah, but I mean, I think it's really trying to sell that like, oh, they're this group of friends and they have these things that they do and that college is about things that like every successive generation like inhabits this campus in the same way and, you know, has the same feeling of like hominess and regularity. Obviously, Ngozi's time at Yale like certainly impacted this comic. This is just like so different from the way that I experienced my undergraduate career or whatever that I, I I I have to imagine that like this is something that you know small liberal arts colleges really particularly ones of like a long history and particular legacy must really cultivate I'm kind of fascinated by the way that's being constructed here I presume if you are in something like a frat or you're on a sports team or you're involved with some particular subculture maybe this is more a part of it because obviously like going up on the roof and having a bonfire is not something that's like, oh, the whole school does it. It seems to be like this group of people. And kissing the ice or kissing the the court or whatever appears to be something that athletic teams are into. But it's not like every Samwell student is going in there and kissing the ice. And if they are, they shouldn't, because that's a great way to get coronavirus. I'm really trying not to be like, this looks really pedo especially because it's not like Biddy is 20, like however you want to cut it. And I'm sure we're very soon going to talk about some of like the power dynamic between Jack and Biddy. It, it's just like, it's, it's not, it's not pedophilic at all. But the way Biddy is balled up into himself with his arms and legs tucked in and like the way that Jack's jacket is just like, he's swimming in it. And the way that his fingers are like barely poking out of the sleeves and he's gazing up at Jack, like blushing with giant eyes. He really just does look much, much younger, like much younger than Jack, much younger than he's supposed to be. To me, it really reminded me of um, shoujo manga and particularly shoujo eye, which I have not read since I was a middle schooler, basically. But as I remember, there's like a pretty strong and common trope of one student character usually having a crush on like an older student, like a prefect or like, you know, like just an older student who helps them. And I haven't read shoujo manga in a really long time, and I never read enough shonen manga to like know whether this is also a trope in shonen. I assume that it is. But I wonder whether that sort of like dynamic, which obviously became very, very popular in fandom and then like in other kinds of comics. I mean, I've never been like a great consumer of like manga or like Japanese media generally, but I believe that this is also a, a trope in uh, Shonen Eye or Yaoi or like whatever the correct turn is these days. I don't know. It's like I'm thinking even of like Yuri on Ice, which is something I've only very barely engaged with, but I know that it's like a younger, less established, like smaller character skeezing rapturously at like an older, like more accomplished one. It's like that, and they have a kind of like mentor relationship. Fucking Biddy. It's just like, he really does look childish here. Not to suggest that Jack is like Kylo Ren coded, but there's, there's like a little piece of Jack's interior monologue, which reads, this is just a thing that Jack needs to do because Biddle doesn't know how to not be cold. Biddle isn't like him. He's not from Canada. Biddle shouldn't be cold. He could get sick and that would stop him from playing hockey or baking. Not playing hockey is terrible. This little 
fit is incredible, but also like this is how a child thinks, or at least it's how like children's books sound. Again, not to suggest that Jack is like child coded or whatever, but I just think this is like a really interesting thing happening where Biddy looks really, really young and then Jack like thinks in a really young way. And I don't know, there's something, there's something kind of interesting happening there. But it is also not pedo because Jack is 25 and Biddy is 20. Like, it's it's just not. Well, Jack is 24 at this point, actually. So, uh, oh, point, but like, uh, okay, here's the thing. I'm very upset that you compared him to Kylo Ren. I don't know anything about Kylo Ren. I, like, I'm like, I don't know. Sorry. I saw The Force Awakens and I was like, ah, this was an enjoyable movie. And then I just checked out completely. So I don't know anything about that kid. I saw The Force Awakens and I was like, this is an enjoyable movie and it also underscores why I can't deal with Star Wars. Goodbye. I mean, I grew up with Star Wars and The Force Awakens was just like, nope, it's dead. See ya. But we are going to have to talk about this eventually because it is just, would you like to have this cake? Please eat some. I'm ready to stick my head in that cake, you know in the future. I'm just waiting. So then they all tell secrets or or not as the case may be. So Shitty's first name is actually Byron Sterling. Well, his first name is Byron. His middle name is Sterling. We talked about this before. I love spoiling it for people. Uh, it's kind of funny to me that he's like surprised that they don't know. Uh, more importantly is this question, dude, can we please know what happened at the draft? It is interesting that that's interrupted with no shooting needs to tell us his first name. Uh, I definitely read this as an indication that like we were going to find out actually what did happen at the draft at some point. Yeah, I did too. I, I didn't know another way to read it. Yeah, I, I mean, I thought it was like, keep in mind, keep in mind, this is still in the background. Here's all these things that you don't know yet. And like one of them is a joke, but like one of them is serious. I do think it's possible to read this question too literally, and I think that people in fandom do. A major sort of like development both in fanfic and analysis of the comic is trying to piece together what it is that actually happened to Jack like at the draft. And I think a lot of people who have interpreted or made interpretations about what happened are taking the wording in this question very literally. They interpret this line to mean that something happened physically at the 2009 NHL entry draft at Centre-Belle in Montreal on June 26th of that year. People use this phrasing to try to suss out like whether or not Jack's overdose happened like at the physical draft. And again, I think the questions that are sort of, you know, lined up here are as follows. Did Jack overdose just before the draft in the days leading up to it, thereby preventing him from participating? Or did Jack overdose physically at the draft, like perhaps as a reaction to things that happened there, for example, being drafted second? And that kind of compounds questions about Kent and Jack because there's uncertainty as to whether Kent was drafted first because he was thought to be better than Jack, or if Jack would have been drafted first, if not for the overdose, ergo, Kent Parson was was the first pick. This doesn't actually matter. Like the difference between first versus second draft pick really doesn't mean very much in the grand scheme of hockey, but it clearly mattered to Jack. I keep being shocked when references to the draft and people asking Jack what happened at the draft get brought up because I feel like this whole thing becomes like very much undiscussable in the comic later and the casual quality of like 
Dex asking him about, you know, or, or telling him that like, you should have gone before Ken Parson or whatever. And then the question happening here really shocked me in rereading. I suspect that the like, you know, rigmarole around Ken Parson as a character and so on and everything leading up to the OD kind of led to this like real tenderness or real like desire to avoid talking about it, both in canon and then in certain parts of fandom. Well, I feel like you can read this line as a reminder that this Jack backstory timeline is still to be resolved. Of course, the implication there being that it will be and or I feel like it's possibly nodding at this being a a contentious topic within the fandom. There's no indication who's asking this question. So it's not coming from the perspective of one character. For example, like Shitty wants to finally know what happened at the draft and ergo you see something about Shitty. Rather, it's just like from the audience of people who are sitting on the roof generally, like it could be anybody but Jack. And I think that's kind of a nod at the fact that people in the fandom want to know. A lot of fan activity has centered around trying to piece together what in fact happened. Yeah, and I think it's very probable that the intent of this question actually changed over time. Like I think in its original context, it may very well have been a reminder. And then as Ngozi like lost interest in that storyline, it just became this kind of like marker of discourse as it were. But it's also like, I think her ultimate reluctance to like actually tell us what happened or like her actual reluctance to like actually force Jack as a character to like discuss what happened maybe does speak to this overall position that we've talked to a couple times. I think there's a general sentiment both within this comic and displayed by Ngozi that like this kind of information or this kind of detail about other people's lives is like gossipy and it's like crass to like want to know and it's like why would you get the satisfaction of of actually finding out this sort of backstory it's like personal history except we're talking about a fictional character his actual feelings aren't going to be hurt by us knowing what happened to him in the past. And the comic keeps setting up like these negative spaces with the implication that they will be filled at some point where like backstory is supposed to go. And like understanding this character is really, really important to your enjoyment and your reception of the comic itself. So, I am slash have been frustrated. Yeah, me too. I I don't like being invited to ask questions and then feel like a narrative is punishing me for asking the questions it told me to ask. Like, I, I find that very frustrating as a reader. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it, actually. The fact that the comic keeps being like, this awful thing happened, this awful thing happened, and then it just, like, refuses to tell you what that was. And Gozi, for many years, like, on her own Twitter and in different spaces, really did sort of heavily hint that this was going to be resolved and that, like, you will find out this backstory. Like, I think there there are posts floating around where she's like, you will find out Jack's backstory. It will be revealed. And then it's just not. And it's definitely the kind of thing where I wish if she were going to do that, she like, I wish she would just tell us what it is. I wish she would just tell us. The one thing I will say is that I believe at some point on her Patreon Discord server, somebody asked 
basically like was Jack not drafted because he OD'd or did he OD because of how he was drafted? And she did answer basically that he wasn't drafted because of his OD, which implies that what happened at the draft was nothing because Jack wasn't there. In reality, when you draft somebody, you're basically securing the right to contract them and put them on your roster. So it would have been in the interest of any NHL team to draft Jack Zimmerman at some point in 2009 to have the option to contract him were he to actually end up like in the NHL. Maybe the calculation that the Aces needed to make was we need a player on our team now. So it seems like Parsons ready to go and Zimmerman may or may not be able to join our roster anytime soon. So we're going to pass and just go with Parson. But then some other team, especially some other team that didn't necessarily have the cap space on their team for him right now, but maybe could have used a player like that a couple years down the road, would have probably like picked up the option. You can't like take yourself out of consideration. The way that you would take yourself out of consideration is by being drafted and then not signing to the team. Yeah. I mean, obviously a lot of things in this comic about the hockey world are very stylized. So it doesn't really bother me. And I don't think it really bothers you either that it doesn't like fully align with the reality of drafting. But I think that the the constant implication, implication, implication in a way that doesn't feel like it was always meant to be that way. So it, it feels like implications that are set up to be resolved instead of implications that are set up to be like ambiguous or confusing or bittersweet or... Um, you know, unresolvable. Like, I I don't know, just it gets me frustrated the more years pass and the more I don't know. All right. Well, the final, final thing that I will say about this particular comic is that while I was looking at it, I noticed that uh, the most recent like reblog of this comic with some text added to it was from April 2020. And I clicked on it and the person who reblogged it had said this in reblogging the comic. I started fucking bawling. I won't be able to enjoy my senior year like this. I won't be able to say goodbye to the school and everyone properly. Who know if we'll even have a graduation? And I don't really have anything to add to that. It's, I don't know, it's just kind of poignant. Yeah, it is. Because it's like, yeah, good point, actually. I've looked at this comic so many times and never, never has it occurred to me doing this podcast fully in lockdown. Has it occurred to me like, oh, you can't do any of this anymore. It hadn't occurred to me in relationship to this. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I know all the things that I can't do, but it's like, it doesn't matter if I can you know, go on the roof with my friends, I wasn't going to anyway. I think something that this does show, actually, is that exactly the thing I was complaining about before, this habit of reiteration and creating of like fake traditions and fake milestones or whatever, 
does have this kind of like aspect about it where you as the reader are kind of like invited into that tradition with the characters. And, and that is nice. That's like a good thing. All right. Well, hold that thought because next time, don't say that we didn't warn you. We're going to 217 graduation. Wake up, Miss. Okay. I've been secret and you can find me on Tumblr at Camillier, C-A-M-I-L-L-I-A-R or S-K-R-T-O-M-G on Tumblr or read my fan fiction on AO3 under familiar. And I'm Tomato and you can find me at tomatowrites.tumblr.com or on AO3 at tomato underscore greens or on this podcast, which you can find at checkdisplease.tumblr.com or on Podbean or on Spotify. This recording took way too long. So I wonder how long we'll take on the next one because it only gets weirder from here. That's true. But there's no ovens next time. So, you know, maybe that'll shave off a couple minutes. Yes, but we have, we have, we have the, the much heralded return of the comic's most fuckable character. <laughs> so like, <laughs> and also the introduction of another character. And also the return of another fucking character. Okay, we'll see you next time for all of these fucking characters. There's not an orgy. It's tragic. Yeah, between now and then you can, you can ask yourself who is which. See you then. Which is to say magic beans. And of course, the thing about beans is somebody just telling you that beans are important is not super convincing. You, you need to see people eating the beans in order to believe that it's something they wanted. Sorry I said beans. I went on like a real journey in my head, which ended with a sort of fairy tale Jack and Biddy experience, but the beans are anal beads. We don't have to go into it. Um, anyway, listen. Um, Check This Pleased is written, recorded, and produced by Secret and Tomato. Our theme music is by Tomato, and our art is by Nahangan.